This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer, and today our guest is Nathan Hockman. He's a Republican who's running for Attorney General of the state of California. The AG's race here is shaping up to be one of the most interesting to watch nationally over the next year. It will pit Rob Bonta, the current Attorney General, who is a progressive, against his more conservative challengers, Hockman and Anne-Marie Schubert, the District Attorney of Sacramento. Hockman is a native Californian. He grew up in Beverly Hills, but he's new to the political scene as he's never run for political office. He's been a federal prosecutor and served in the Department of Justice in Washington while George W. Bush was president. We talked to him about where he stands in some major issues and how he differs from Schubert, as well as from Bonta. And now, here's my conversation with Nathan Hockman. Nathan Hockman, from your office in Century City, California, to my home in Oakland, California, welcome to It's All Political. You are, I'm, I'm looking at you now on Zoom, and you are in your newly opened campaign office, correct? Uh, well, it's my campaign office slash law office at this point. And there's, I, and of course, there's nothing worse than talking about images on a podcast, but I behind you are some uh, beautiful photographs of the Washington Monument and the reflecting pool, and you say you, you took these pictures. Yes, yeah, so uh, one of my hobbies is as an amateur photographer, and when I was in uh, Washington, D.C., uh, and living there for about a little over a year, when I was the assistant attorney general running the U.S. Department of Justice's tax division, uh, I had some extra time on my hand. Uh, my, my wife and three children, young children, were back in Los Angeles, and I would do the commute back and forth. But when I was in D.C., I was allowed to wander around with my camera and, and took these pictures. Oh, wow. Okay. And we will, we'll get to that in a second. And it, let's, it seems like a good time to talk about uh, a little bit about your background. I think uh, many listeners very likely aren't that familiar with you. You're a new face in the California political scene. Um, and, back, and of course, biography will be very much a part of the campaign. Rob Bonta talks about uh, his family. Uh, uh, you know, he's the first Filipino American to be attorney general, parents activists and such. Uh, you grew up in Los Angeles. You're, you're a Californian. And uh, your, your dad was also an immigrant, correct? And, and he also faced some discrimination in his life, I believe. Yeah, so he was a, uh, an immigrant from Canada, came over here in the late 1940s to Los Angeles, uh, went to UCLA Law School and was one of its first graduates in the first graduating class. And when he went to get a, a job in Los Angeles, in downtown Los Angeles, uh, it was the same year, actually, that Sandra Day O'Connor uh, graduated at, at Stanford Law School, and they shared one thing in common. She couldn't get a job with a downtown Los Angeles law firm because she was a woman, and he couldn't get a job with a downtown Los Angeles law firm because he was Jewish. He then went on to where he could get a job in the U.S. government, which is the United States Air Force, uh, was a captain in the JAG Corps. Uh, and when he left the JAG Corps, he started his practice uh, in the late 50s, early 1960s, uh, a firm Hockman Salkin 
Tasher Perez uh, that exists today. Uh, unfortunately, he passed away a uh, little under 20 years ago. And then you, you worked at that firm as well, correct? And you grew up in Los Angeles. So I worked in that firm um, after I, I went to law school. Uh, he was an inspiring figure and, and showed me that actually being a lawyer, he loved being a lawyer. And uh, he viewed it as a, a, not just, it, actually his favorite word for a lawyer, which I've also adopted, is a counselor. Because hmm. he view, believed that his role was just more than translating the law. It was actually counseling people on how to make good decisions, give them the information to do so. And so I followed in his footsteps, uh, went to a different law school in California, Stanford, uh, and then went right into the U.S. Attorney's Office, which is something actually he, he did as well as a federal prosecutor. I did that for about seven years. I had uh, I ran investigations and did trials of narcotics trafficking, uh, gang crimes, international money laundering, tax evasion, I ran the environmental crimes unit um, as its coordinator and spearheaded the Los Angeles Disaster Task Force, Disaster Fraud Task Force, where we went after people who had ripped off the federal government and victims following the 1994 Northridge earthquake. Uh, after that seven years, that's when I had a chance to work with my father uh, at his law firm, which was a criminal and civil tax litigation firm until uh, about 10 years later, when President George uh, W. Bush gave me a call uh, and asked if I would be the head and the Assistant Attorney General of the U.S. Department of Justice's Tax Division. When the President calls, you, you generally answer a call like that, yes, and, uh, and had the honor and privilege to uh, run the Tax Division. I had 350 lawyers doing civil, criminal, and appellate tax litigation in every state in the United States, in every federal court in the United States. Uh, after that, um, I had the chance to uh, go back to Los Angeles, uh, spend more time with my wife and three little kids, and then uh, uh, joined two international law firms, Bingham McCutcheon uh, and Morgan Lewis. I was uh, head or deputy head of each of their white collar and criminal investigations divisions. Uh, during that time, I served on the Los Angeles uh, City Ethics Commission uh, including as its president, uh, and developed a, uh, and basically was a defense attorney as well as a complex civil litiga civil litigator during this time. So I, you got a you got a great gig now. You're, you're doing uh, white collar criminal defense, uh, tax litigation. Why why do you want to why do you want this job as attorney general? This is you know there's a lot of politics involved. Uh, you know, you're, you're, you're constantly, you're going to be doing it uh, in, a, in a largely democratic state. You're Republican. Uh, you, you might be fighting the, the a, a Democratic White House sometimes. Why do you want this to, to be dropped into this hell that is the job of attorney general? <laughs> you know, I was raised um, by two parents who believed that public service was not just uh, an option, but an obligation. Uh, they themselves served uh, their communities, um, both uh, here in Los Angeles and nationally. And that was the dinner table conversation, which is not just complaining about what's going on, but actually being an active um, participant and trying to help solve the problems. When I've had a chance to work in government, it whetted the appetite uh, for serving the public. Uh, as a federal prosecutor, there really is no better job in some ways than having a, your client be justice. And they tell you from day one that justice is your client. It's a relentless client, but it's a client that if you serve well, faithfully, and give all your energies to, 
will be one of the most rewarding clients you ever have. And so now I have the opportunity to run for an elected office, to again serve justice, to serve the people of the state of California. And even though there will be bumps along the way, even though there's a partisan battles going out out there, the job and the ability to, to do that job, uh, which is the second largest law firm in the United States, if you want to look at it like that. Absolutely. The AG job, right? I mean, it's, uh, it's over 4,000 lawyers. It influences almost every aspect of California life. That's how much the law nowadays touches Californians' life. And if I have the privilege to, to ever serve in that position, it would be one of the best and highest privileges I would have ever had. We'll have more of my conversation with Nathan Hockman after this short break. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And now back to my conversation with Nathan Hockman. So let's get to some of the things that might be on your desk. Should you be California's attorney general this month, the federal judge in California, as you know, uh, overturned the state's decades old ban on assault weapons. Uh, the, the money line from this that we've heard a lot was when the judge said, quote, like the Swiss army knife. The popular AR-15 rifle is a perfect combination of a home defense weapon and a homeland defense equipment, um, end quote. This will uh, likely very much be an issue in the campaign. Bonta, Rob Bonta has already said he's going to appeal it. What do you think of this ruling? Well, again, it's the type of ruling that one would have to study because the judge came up with a conclusion and you would actually look at his legal reasoning on how he got there. One of the jobs of the attorney general is to enforce the law. We're not there to make the law, change the law. That's for the state legislature to do. We're there to enforce the law. And to the extent that the enforcement of this law that's been on the books for probably over 30 years, uh, that has now been challenged by a judge, uh, requires you to go ahead and, and analyze that opinion and figure out whether or not the judge got it right or whether or not the judge got it wrong. That is the duty of the state attorney general. When you ask me what's on my desk right now, uh, the, the probably the number one issue that I've been dealing with because of a personal connection I had several weeks ago is the scourge of fentanyl poisoning up and down the state of California. It's an issue that I came across um, you know, uh, almost by happenstance because I, I ran into and, and was introduced to two parents who had recently lost their 16-year-old child who went to a local high school here. When he ordered off of Snapchat what he thought was a pill, uh, the pill arrived, he took the pill, and within two minutes he was dead because the pill, unknowing to him, was spiked with fentanyl. And then when I looked into the issue, uh, I mean, I, I prosecuted drug crimes in the 1990s. I'm familiar with the opioid uh, issues in our state, but I had no idea of the power of this particular man-made opioid fentanyl. It literally with two milligrams, as I learned, you could be dead in two minutes. And what has happened is that the, the fentanyl ingredients are coming from China to Mexican drug lords. They 
make millions of these pills in unregulated labs in Mexico, then bring them up to the United States. And while this was an East Coast problem four years ago, the scourge of this problem, the deaths of this problem, the innocent children and young adults who are dying every single day, including probably today, is overwhelming. So when I looked into the problem, I saw that there was a legislative proposal that was on the books that over 250 parents and all major law enforcement organizations had offered up. And it was to do for fentanyl dealers what had been done to drunk drivers. The Mothers Against Drunk Driving got a notice passed that if you're convicted of drunk driving, they read you a notice that says drunk driving is inherently uh, dangerous and lethal exercise. And if you get convicted again and you, are, and you kill someone, then at that point you could be charged for murder. So the fentanyl, the parents who had suffered these tragedies where they lost their children to fentanyl dealers said, why don't we do the same notice for convicted fentanyl dealers? So they go to the state Senate Public Safety Committee. They get a bill, SB 350, before the, the committee. And on March 23rd, they, these parents show up in numbers with pictures of their children right in front of them, explaining while the, the, the most balanced, reasonable thing you could do is at least give notice to a convicted fentanyl dealer that if they continue their activity and someone dies the next time, they could be charged with murder. And what happened? Well, you know, the Democrats happened to be in control of the Senate Public Safety Committee and they killed it. They killed the bill without even going further. And their reason for killing it makes no sense. They basically said that this notice may result in some fentanyl dealers being convicted and getting more time in the future. And that that is the reason they don't want to do it. Shame on them. They should, they should actually go ahead and figure out ways to deter first-time fentanyl dealers from becoming second-time fentanyl dealers and saving lives in the process. But I want to just hold, bookmark that for a second, sure. but I want to just to, to, to wrap it up on, on, uh, on uh, the, uh, the, the assault weapons ruling. You haven't read the ruling or you, haven't, you have a comment on it or, or what? I have read the ruling. Uh, and again, my comment on it would be that this is the type of situation that you would evaluate to determine whether or not the, the law, the, the district courts that have preceded this particular district court, um, all of whom have actually upheld this ruling, uh, if there's anything particularly new in this ruling, and I have not done that comparison okay. to determine whether or not there's something new in this ruling that this judge found that hadn't been found in other situations that would lead you to reach a different conclusion than the other district courts had reached in the past. Okay. And then on, on fentanyl, so this is one of the driving things that's gotten you to, to run for attorney general. Is this this sort of intransigent? What, what could the attorney general do in the case like this? So let me give you the example of what I actually did do and where the attorney general could have led and has chosen not to. So it turns out that you don't actually need a law to deal with the bulk of fentanyl drug dealers who get convicted. As you're probably aware, most people who get, most fentanyl dealers who are going to get convicted either plead guilty or plead no contest to the crime. It's probably over 80% of situations like that. So you can go directly to all the district attorneys, all 58 of them in the 58 different counties and ask them to put as part of their plea agreements, this notice 
they now insist that if someone wants to plead guilty, they have to acknowledge this notice, they have to sign that they received this notice, it has to be put on the court record that they actually received it. Uh, and so what I did is I actually wrote a letter, private citizen Nathan Hockman, not Attorney General Nathan Hockman, wrote a letter to all 58 district attorneys across the state and gave them the reasons and the, and the logic and the thinking behind adding this notice to every plea agreement that they go forward in the future with convicted fentanyl dealers. I'm pleased to say that the heads of the California District Attorneys Association, uh, DAs Vern Pearson and Jeff Reisig, have agreed uh, to implement this notice in their jurisdictions. And hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll send that word out to all the rest of the people in their organization to equally uh, implement this notice. And if this notice saves even one life, because one, a first time convicted fentanyl dealer realizes that no, I don't wanna be charged with murder if I go ahead and kill someone else. In fact, I don't wanna kill someone else. Fentanyl is literally too lethal. It's a hundred times more powerful than morphine, 50 times more powerful than heroin. It really yes. is sort of a silent assassin out there in our in California, killing children, unfortunately. Huge issue in San Francisco right now. Huge issue in San Francisco right now, yes. Um, Another thing that there would be uh, on your desk very likely is that uh, California has had this ability for years to set its own vehicle emission standards. Uh, the Trump administration uh, revoked a, 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 a waiver that it got to, to set its own standards. Bonta uh, recently called the uh, vehicle emission standards critical to the fight against climate change, uh, and they, they've uh, tried to you know, get this power back. Would you continue that fight to uh, to to allow uh, to enable California to set its own vehicle emission standards? Climate change, of course, very important in the state. Absolutely. Uh, again, I'm not here to, to criticize uh, the Attorney General when he gets it right. And on the environment, I'm very pro environment. Again, I was the environmental crimes coordinator back when I was in the U.S. Attorney's Office, and we went after land, sea, and air polluters. To the extent that the vehicle admission standard can help us achieve a better environment for the state of California, I would absolutely be in favor of California regaining control uh, over its vehicle admission standards. Right now in, in uh, Sacramento, there are several uh, measures to reform the way policing is done in California. I know you have some strong feelings about this. One of them is the, is the Crises Act. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with this. It's AB 118. It would. Uh, I had uh, uh, Senator Cindy Kamalager on the on the podcast a couple of months ago. It would create a pilot program that would send community-based organizations into the field to respond to nonviolent nine one one calls, so that law enforcement doesn't have to do this. Where are you on 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 this? Uh, in this, if you want to comment on the legislation in particular, but on the issue in general. Certainly. Let me let me deal with the issue in general, and we can deal with the legislation. Generally, I believe as treating in trying to solve the problem of systemic racism, of certain police abuse within police departments, you have to make an initial choice. Do you wanna make the police your partners in trying to arrive at the solution or do you wanna make them your enemies? Rob Bonta has chosen the latter course to make the police the enemy in the process, to, villain, to vilify them, to make them, to, to try and ostracize them, you know, to try and cancel them. I don't believe that that's the best way for this solution or quite honestly, any solution that actually has a chance of working short, medium and long-term. 
So as far as with working with police departments, I absolutely believe, and by the way, I am joined by the chiefs of virtually every police department that the, every police department can better recruit, can better manage, can better train, and can better supervise uh, all of its officers to do its best to inculcate with them the values of that department, because there is no department I'm aware of that doesn't believe in the ideas of protect and serve all their constituents. Now, it doesn't mean that they've gotten it right. It doesn't mean that a lot that, that there's certain segments of their departments for whom that they weren't properly either hired, trained, or supervised. But I believe that working with the police department, working with the police chiefs, the sheriffs of all the counties of Los, An of Los Angeles, of all the counties of Los Angeles and the ones in California is absolutely crucial as a philosophical principle. As far as a pilot program goes, I've had a, an interesting experience recently working with the LA Sheriff's Department and its host team dealing with the homeless situation. Host is the Homeless Outreach Services team. And the head of that team explained to me a very powerful concept. He said that he views his role as a guardian, not as some, not even a, a protector, as a guardian of the people. And he views that the role of the, of the police, in that case, the LA County Sheriff's, is not to do this with the homeless, but to work with the homeless, to work with the social service organizations. He works with the Department of Mental Health, the Department of Social Services, the Department of Public Health, uh, LASA, the Los Angeles Homeless Service Authority. They all go out together as a team. And they don't go out just at the last second to rouse the homeless and, and kick them out of their place. They, go, they, they basically spend weeks or months getting to know the homeless. They're actual people, they treat them humanely, which is the key. And in the seven years that this, that this organization, the host organization has moved thousands of homeless people away from homeless encampments, they've arrested two. And I was stunned. I could not believe that this, this solution actually exists in our society and I hadn't heard about it. And he said, look, if you treat people humanely, if you treat them with respect, if you pair the police with the social organizations to go ahead and find the, the proper, whether it's mental health, substance abuse, uh, find them a job, whatever their particular issue is, and then you pair it all together, the homeless person is ha not happy. They're willing to leave because they see that actually people care about them and they're trying to give them some path to a better life than living on the street in very dangerous conditions. So again, when it comes time, whether it's a domestic, um, you know, it's a sort of a domestic violence counselor, where it be any type of additional community organization that goes out on particular calls. On the one hand, if it's, if it's a situation, let's say for domestic violence, that could get violent. The domestic violence counselors that have talked to me basically said, we don't want to go out there without police backing us up. On the other hand, the sheriffs would just assume have, or the police, someone with the expertise to de-escalate a problem that they might not otherwise have. So again, when people talk about defunding the police, reducing the police's budget, my goal would actually be increasing the budgets, but also increasing the budgets of the social services organization, have them paired up in a smart, common sense way, 
and analyze a particular situation on whether you need a just a domestic violence counselor or a mental health counselor to go out, whether you need just the police is just an absolute dangerous situation, or in almost all the cases, whether the pairing makes sense and they roll out as a team, as the host team has done incredibly successfully here in Los Angeles County. California remains one of only four states without a process for decertifying police officers who, who've committed wrongdoing at, at an agency you know, to prevent them from sort of bouncing from one to the other. Uh, there's currently a piece of legislation right now, SB2 from uh, Stephen Bradford, uh, your fellow uh, uh, Southern Californian from Los Angeles, that would strip uh, police officers of their badges, but it's it's stuck in the legislature right now. And it's sort of what you alluded to between this pull between law enforcement and uh, and advocates for criminal justice reform. Uh, law enforcement advocates say that the panel, uh, we uh, did a column on this a, a few weeks ago, say the panel uh, that would decide how to decertify the officers is too heavily weighted against them in terms of its composition. What, what do you say about this piece of legislation? And, and with this, what would your solution be if, if not this? So again, there with these pieces of legislation, um, the devil is always in the details. Uh, if it was as simple as you just proposed, it probably would have passed. But most <laughs> yes. likely is embedded with different, and I don't have the piece of legislation in front of me, nor have I reviewed it at this point. But inevitably, it's in, embedded with parts of the legislation that probably don't make common sense. In fact, Senator Bradford was, when I talked earlier about SB 350, that notice that you're trying to give to fentanyl dealers, Senator Bradford is one of the people who did not vote for it in the Senate Public Safety Committee. So, but as, as far as an overall philosophy, I would turn your attention to something that recently got some news, which is the Lewis Registry. The Lewis Registry, which is capital L-E-W-I-S, is being run by Errol Southers out of uh, USC. Uh, and it's a registry that seeks to create a national database and takes all public information about any type of police officer who has been um, fired, uh, reprimanded, demoted, puts it in its registry. It's then available to any police department that can access the registry, which is it's a public registry at that point. So that way, we're not just dealing with maybe a police officer that moves from one county in California to another. This would be a police officer that would move from one county in California to a county in uh, Nebraska, Alabama, back east, anywhere in the south. And they could look at the Lewis Registry and see whether or not that police officer had had any problems in his past employment. Many, many uh, legislators talk about how the George Floyd's murder affected them and shaped their uh, consciousness about the police reform. Uh, how, did, how did it shape you? You know, it's, it was a, um, it's one of those events that you think you're going along in life and you think you have a, a bit of an idea. And then an event like George Floyd shows up and it really makes you go back to ground zero and study what you thought you know. You know, th this whole notion of systemic racism, again, I touched on it in various parts of my career, but really hadn't given it as much thought as I've given it in the last year. Uh, and it's a real situation. Where I differ with Mr. Bonta, for instance, is the solutions for systemic racism. Do we, and, and potentially police abuse in different police departments. You know, I, when I was in the U.S. Attorney's Office, I prosecuted uh, sheriffs, uh, deputy sheriffs, a part of elite narcotics unit that went ahead and stole money from drug dealers uh, and occasionally even beat them up. 
and had a, had a chance to see firsthand in a court of law how a, how a deputy sheriff sworn to uphold the law could lie repeatedly under penalty of perjury and search warrants and arrest warrants, could actually engage in crimes himself. Ultimately, he was convicted and ultimately he went to jail, as did over, I think, 15 different sheriff, deputy sheriffs at that time. So George Floyd uh, opened my eyes. And it, well, not just George Floyd, but George Floyd being sort of the, the, the moment in time, but then all the effort, all the people who have then contributed to bringing this issue to, to light, I think that's incredibly useful. And I hope that they will con to continue to contribute uh, as we seek solutions for the problems that are endemic in our society. The, uh, one more a national question. Uh, the Supreme Court uh, is going to hear a case, an abortion rights case in uh, from Mississippi at next term. It could very well, given the current uh, composition of the court, uh, limit abortion rights uh, and, and, and put more onus on the states to, to sort of uh, decide where they uh, think the lines on abortion should be. Do, for, do you support abortion rights and where, where are you on, on that, in that conversation? I support the Roe v. Wade decision. Uh, it's it's you know it's 100% support the Roe v. Wade decision. Uh, it created a balancing test back in the early 1970s. It's been modified by the Supreme Court ever since, uh, and I see no reason uh, why it should be changed at all at this point. Let's talk about politics here, since this is the It's All Political podcast. Let's, and we got to talk about someone who uh, many California Republicans are still very fond of, and that's President Trump. Many still believe that the, the uh, even in, in California, that uh, there was widespread voter fraud. Uh, and and former as former President Trump has alleged, of course, that is wrong. Do you believe that there was widespread voter fraud? And, and uh, do you think that uh, President Biden was elected uh, in a just and uh, manner? So my belief in why there was not systemic fraud, widespread voter fraud in the election comes from the conclusion reached by President Trump's Attorney General, William Barr. William Barr had access to more information than I or probably anyone outside the government could have had access to. He had access to the FBI nationally. He had access to US attorney's offices nationally. He had access to documents, testimony, everything that had been done in that investigation. And he concluded in early December of 2020 that he did not see systemic fraud in connection with the election. You know, William Barr was not someone to, to um, pull punches uh, and not someone to do something to, um, to antagonize the president if he could, if he believed in his heart uh, that the answer was the other way. In other words, if William Barr had seen systemic fraud, I'm absolutely convinced he would have called it out very loudly. So when the Attorney General of the United States tells me, after reviewing all the evidence that I am not party to, that he does not see systemic fraud in connection with that election, and as a lawyer, I rely on evidence, and I haven't seen evidence to show systemic fraud in connection with that election, then I easily led to the conclusion that Joe Biden won the election. Uh, and there is no evidence that I have seen of systemic fraud to the contrary. And did you vote for Trump in 2020 or 2016? You know, again, uh, my, uh, you know, Donald Trump is not running for uh, California Attorney General. 
Oh, oh, but he's he will be discussed. He will absolutely be discussed. <laughs> and in fact, if I had to discuss one thing that occurred during the Trump presidency that I fully support, and not only myself, but Democrats fully supported, was the First Step Act, probably the, the best piece of criminal justice legislation that's passed in the last 10 years. That was bipartisan legislation. Jared Kushner was on one side. You had the Democrats promoting it on, on the other side. It passed overwhelmingly by the House and the Senate, signed by the president. And it's done some very smart things. It basically is focusing on rehabilitation while in prison and providing money for it. It's, it's focusing on reentry programs. So, so when someone comes out of prison, hopefully they have a skill set, but now have a job to go into. It's mm -hmm. focusing on mm -hmm. compassionate release for both the elderly and the ill who after they serve a certain portion of their sentence could qualify for getting out of prison early. These are the first, if California adopted a First Step Act and modeled it after the federal First Step Act, it would be a huge achievement in criminal justice reform in this state. So when people ask about Donald Trump, I point to, the, especially in the world of criminal justice, which is the world I am seeking to enter at the state level, a bipartisan piece of legislation that I would completely advocate if I became the California Attorney General. But did you vote for him? Again, the, the, the votes that I have, uh, quite candidly, are personal. Uh, I don't share my votes on Donald Trump or, for that matter, any other president or any other presidential election. Uh, I, I focus on, in this particular case, what happened in criminal justice reform under Trump's presidency. And as I mentioned, the First Step Act is one of the probably best pieces of bipartisan legislation that we've seen in criminal justice in the last 10 years. Nathan, thank you so much for being on It's All Political. I look forward to talking to you more as the, as the race progresses. Uh, you have done a good job uh, raising money early. Uh, you've got uh, more than 500 grand in the bank, which is for someone who's new to the scene, you you I, I, you are confident that you will have enough money to run a uh, the, the campaign you want to run, correct? Absolutely. And, uh, and again, the fact that I've been able to raise the money is a strong message that my message is resonating with, with donors and voters out there. Uh, and it, it, it will be a message that I will take up and down the state. Uh, you know, and hopefully get the resources necessary to compete, which I'm absolutely convinced based on the first six weeks of, uh, if the first six weeks is an indication, I will absolutely have the resources to compete uh, in this race. All right. Well, I will see you uh, in LA or in the Bay or, or parts in between uh, sometime over the next couple of months. I look forward Thanks to Thanks so that. much for being on. Thank you very much. Okay. Appreciate it. Take it easy. I'd like to thank you all for listening and hope that you and your families are safe and healthy. I'd like to thank Nathan Hockman for joining us today. I'd like to thank Karen Creighton for producing this episode. A shout out for our theme music. That song is called Cattle Call and it's written by Randy Clark and produced by Randy Clark and Crow Song. We'll talk to you next time.